Hey, I want you to know about a couple situations uh, with churches that we support. One of the things that we do here at Freedom that I'm very excited about and that we've done since day one, since we've been a church, is uh, we want to help other churches get started. Churches like us and, uh, and churches that are trying to get started, they need money, they need support, they need prayer support, all that kind of stuff. And some things are happening with two of our churches that I want you to know about. One of them is Trinity Grace Church in Brooklyn, New York. And I don't know if you followed the news at all, but a few months ago, a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court of New York uh, overturned a decision that would allow churches to meet in schools. So what we're doing here uh, in South Carolina is now illegal in the city of New York for a church to meet in a school. And so Trinity Grace, one of our churches, they've been meeting in a school. So starting today, they are having to meet somewhere else. So we want to pray for them, not only for them, but for all the churches of New York, uh, that 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 will be overturned. There is a bill that's been passed through the Senate in New York to try to overturn that, but it's still got to go through the House, and then it's still got to be signed into legislation by the governor, and then it would probably still have to uh, come under attack through the courts and that kind of stuff. So anyway two things about that. One, let's be thankful that we have this place. Be thankful that you as taxpayers of this county, you're paying for this building anyway, and they're allowing us to rent it from the school district. And so we ought to be very, very thankful that we can meet here at Greer High School every week. And uh, so that's a good thing. And second, let's pray for the churches of New York, specifically Trinity Grace Church in Brooklyn, who we support and their pastor, Caleb Clardy. The second thing I want you to know about, about some churches we're supporting, is a a brand new church that we're just supporting this year. It's called the Hub Church, and it's starting down in the Socastee area of the Myrtle Beach area down there. Socastee is kind of between Surfside Garden City and Conway and all that down there. And uh, they launched last week, they had their first service last week, had 115 people in attendance for the very first Sunday. 65 of those were people they'd never met before, brand new folks, had two people accept Christ their first Sunday. So, uh, so we're very excited about what's going on there. I want you to pray for the Hub Church and their pastor, Keith Darnell. Keith Darnell is an old redneck boy from right up here in Marietta, South Carolina, and he's reaching people for Jesus in Myrtle Beach. So miracles never stop happening, all right? And that's a cool, very cool thing. So I want you to know about those two things and us to be praying about that. Today, what we're going to be doing here today is we're going to continue the series of messages we started last week about the seven letters to the churches in, uh, in the book of Revelation. Now, I, as I told you last week, but if you weren't here, just let me remind you, this is focusing on chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. Now, if you're hoping that we're going to jump into, you know, the dragon and the woman and the, you know, all that kind of stuff, we're not getting into that, uh, this, this series. Uh, you'll have to go on uh, iTunes and find somebody else to tell you about all that. We're going to be focusing on chapter 2 and chapter 3, which is seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven different churches. And I think that we can get a lot of good information from these letters to these churches because as we talked about last week, Jesus is the founder of the church. He's the head of the church. He's the boss of the church. And so when he writes a letter to his churches, we ought to pay attention to what it has to say. And so what he wrote to these seven churches also comes in uh, handy and, and, and it's stuff that we need to listen to for our church here today in Greer, South Carolina. So today we're going to talk about the, the letter to the church at Smyrna. And it's Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. If you want to turn there, don't worry about it. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. You can follow along. 
but the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was, last week we talked about the church at Ephesus, and that's where the book of Ephesians comes from in the New Testament. The church at Smyrna, we don't know a whole lot other than what's in this letter. There's not a lot that happened uh, in the other parts of the New Testament about it. But we do know that Smyrna was located about 40 miles north of Ephesus, so it's kind of the same general area. But compared to 40 miles today and 40 miles then, it was, might as well have been another whole culture and a different kind of folks that lived up there. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, we're going to read that in just a second. Now, this is the shortest of the seven letters. All right, we're going to do all seven of these letters. This is the shortest one. It's just verses 8 through 11. But even though it's a short message, it's very important for, for us today to hear. And it might be a message that as you listen to it, you think, I don't know if I want to hear this or not, uh, because it's, it's a very realistic and it's a message that talks about sometimes times are tough and we have to learn how to deal with them. See, I think that in our life, most of us, we're, we're all different folks and some of us have come from very different backgrounds and different home situations and things like that. But most of us, if we're honest, we would say, you know what I really want? I, I want the good life. Now, whatever the good life might mean, you, you want something to be good. And, and, and for most of us, the good life equals happiness. And, and even though we might not say that out loud, we, we don't wake up in the morning and think, the thing that I'm trying to do most of all today is to find happiness. We kind of live our lives that way. We buy things because we think they'll make us happy. We get into relationships because we think they'll make us happy. We take up hobbies or quit doing hobbies because we think they'll make us happy. And so that's kind of what we do. We, we try to make our lives into this happiness type of thing. And, and so the thing about happiness is, is that it means different things for different people. That some people need more money to be happy. Some people need less money to be happy. Some people, the people in New York last week were really happy after the Super Bowl was over. The people in Boston were not happy. Some people, for me to be happy, I just need like, you know, to sit in the sand and see the surf and have all you can eat barbecue and hash. That's pretty much all I need to be happy. And so some of you, you're like, no, I need a whole lot more than that. I need fancy cars and that kind of stuff. But one of the things I think all of us would agree on is that part of happiness for us equals a lack of pain and problems. I don't know anybody that would say, you know what, I think I'd be a little bit happier if I had a kidney stone right now. Or if, if I couldn't pay my bills, that would really make me happier. If my relationships were falling apart, man, that would that would make me happy. No, for us, we, we, we kind of equate the good life with happiness, and we kind of equate happiness with a lack of pain and a lack of problems. So part of what we do, even not knowing it all the time, is we live our life trying to avoid pain and trying to avoid problems, and that's natural. There's a problem with that, living our life that way, though. The world we live in is broken. What I mean by that is, when you read the Scripture, and you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, you read the whole story of God's Scripture, what you see in there is that something came into the world a long time ago back in the Garden of Eden called sin. And all of us suffer from it. All of us deal with it. We deal with the effects of sin. And, and the Scripture tells us that even nature, by its, by its very essence, is affected by sin. And so we live in this broken world. And because we live in a broken world that's been broken by sin, there is going to be pain in this life. You are going to have problems in this life. That's the reality 
of the way things are going to be. So when we try to live our lives totally avoiding that stuff and thinking all I want to do is get through life with no pain, no problems, and I'll be happy, we know that that's not going to happen. Well, the letter to the church at Smyrna that we're going to read today, Jesus was writing this to a church that was in the middle of difficulty. They were living right in the middle of it day after day. And I think that what he says to them is good words for us today on how we can deal with pain, problems, and all of that stuff that's going to come into our life. So look at Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to start by reading verses 8 and 9. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Let me stop there real quick. At the beginning of all these letters, the first verse of every of the seven letters, Jesus reminds you of who he is. He's saying, I'm writing you this letter, and this is who I am. And so what he's saying here is, I'm the first and the last. Jesus was present at creation, and he's going to be present at the end of the, at the end of the earth. Jesus didn't just show up in Bethlehem. He's always been. And so he said, I'm the first, I'm the last. There's a verse at the end of Revelation where it says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, which means I'm the beginning and the end. The first letter of the Greek alphabet is Alpha. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And so Jesus is saying, this is why I've got the right to tell you these things because I'm the first and the last. I've always been. I'll always be here. And not only that, I came to earth. I died and death didn't keep me down. I came to life again. So Jesus is putting out there why he is the one who can write this letter. Then verse 9, it says this. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And I think one of the big things that we need to learn from this letter today is this. God measures success in a different way than we do. God measures success in a different way than we do. Look at verse 9 there, what he says to this church. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Now, all of us know that that's not good. There's none of us in here that would say, I wish I was afflicted and poor. No, we don't want that. And so Jesus is saying to them, listen, I know things are tough. You're poor. You've got all these problems that are coming on you. But then the very next thing, look at what he says right after that. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And they're probably looking around and saying, are you serious, Jesus? We're not rich at all. We, you just said you know our afflictions and our poverty. How can you say that we're rich? And then he goes on in the rest of verse 9 to even explain a little more how he understands what they're going through. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is what was going on when you see the word slander there. This is what was happening to the church at Smyrna. That the, 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 the city of Smyrna was very loyal to the Roman government, all right? See, Rome owned all of these, these cities that, that Jesus is writing these letters to. Rome owned all of those cities. And what they would do is they would appoint these governors to come and, and take over and, and manage these cities and that kind of stuff. And, and the, the people didn't normally like the Romans coming in. It'd be like if Canada invaded us. Uh, that would be crazy. And, uh, and some dude from Winnipeg was appointed to be mayor of Greer. And we had to listen to him talk about a boot and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and we'd, all of our bacon would be round then and not straight and that kind of thing. And so, so that's, what, that's what was going on here. And so they're bringing all this Roman culture in. But the city of Smyrna, they didn't mind it. They were very loyal to the Roman government. 
And they were so loyal to the Roman government that what they would do is the Jews who were not Christians, that they didn't like the fact that the, the church was growing. They didn't like the fact the church was reaching people. And so they said, you know what we can do to stop this church? We can start turning them into the Romans and, and making up accusations against them. And so they would do things like when the, when the church would meet together, they'd go tell the Roman officials, hey, you know what they're doing? They're meeting together to start a revolution. They're going to try to overthrow the Roman government. And so then the Roman government would come in and they'd arrest them. When they would have uh, the Lord's Supper, when they would take the bread and take the wine like Jesus told them to do, they would go to the Roman authorities and they'd say, they're practicing cannibalism because Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. So they're actually eating the flesh of somebody and drinking the blood of someone. And the Romans would come in and they'd break that up. And so there was all of these kinds of false accusations going around. And that's what they were having to deal with. And so Jesus says, listen, I know it's tough. You've got these Jews that think that they're doing the right thing, but they're actually serving Satan, and they're reporting you to the Roman government, and they're having you arrested, and all this kind of stuff. And I can imagine that as the, as the church at Smyrna was listening to this letter being read to them the first time, verse 9, it's like they're listening saying, yes, Jesus understands. He knows what's going on, and they're probably thinking, I can't wait for verse 10, because I bet in verse 10, Jesus is going to say, listen, I know what you're going through. I know it's bad, and then verse 10 is going to come, and Jesus is going to say, and I shall smite thee, evil Jews, and lay the smack down on the Romans. And, you know, that, that's probably what they were expecting. But look what verse 10 says. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Hey, it's been bad. Just want to let you know. Still going to be some suffering coming. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. They're probably thinking, 10 days? All right, we can handle that. Be faithful even to the point of death. Way, whoa, whoa, whoa. Death? And I will give you the crown of life. So think about this. They're already being slandered. They're under affliction. They're poor. And then Jesus says, and just so you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's not very comforting to us, is it, to read that? Because that's not the way we think it should work out. And then there's even a, a, something that's more disturbing to us in verse 10 when it says this. I tell you, now say these next two words with me, the devil. Don't be afraid. He ain't got no power over you. Say it again. I tell you, the devil will, per, will put some of you in prison to test you. Now does that bother anybody else but me? You're saying, Jesus that the devil's going to do something to us? You're Jesus, right? We, we talked about earlier, we talked about last week, who's the head of the church? Who is it? Say it with me. Jesus. Who's the boss of the church? Who's the founder of the church? Who's more powerful than the devil? But right there in verse 10, Jesus says, hey, the devil's going to put some of you in prison. But there's, a, there's another word in verse 10 that helps us understand what this is all about. He says, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Now, when I was in school, one of the things that I was really good at, the, the older I got, I was better at it. I was really good at fooling my teachers. Now, I, was, I didn't fool all of them, so I know some of y'all teachers are like, oh, yeah, y'all thought you thought you was fooling them. Listen, some of them I had them fooled. I know I did, all right? And, but not all of them. But I was really good at fooling my teachers. I could sit in class, man, they thought that I was, you know, into what was going on. 
I, I never got detention and that kind of stuff. But I was back there doing my own thing. I was cutting up. I was doodling. I was thinking about everything else other than the Count of Monte Cristo or algebraic equations or whatever we were talking about. And I was really good at fooling my teachers. And the, the sad thing was, in school, I was really good at fooling myself also. Because I could make myself believe, well, I mean, I got this stuff down pat. But you know the day that I always knew that I wasn't fooling my teachers and I wasn't fooling myself was on test day. Because on test day, it didn't matter what the look was on my face and where my eyeballs were in the class and how much I could make somebody think I had something going on or, or how much I, you know, I thought that I knew. On test day, all that mattered is what the truth was. And see, the test, when I would take a test, the test would reveal to, to my teachers and it would reveal to me what kind of student I really was. And in those days, it wasn't very good. That's what, would, that's what came out on test day. And so in verse 10 there, when Jesus says, listen, the devil's going to put some of you in prison in order to test you, what, what you need to understand about that is this. Jesus will allow the devil to test us. Jesus, and, and what you need to understand is, the devil can never do anything that Jesus doesn't give him permission to do. So if the devil tests you, it's not that the devil's out there doing it and you're a child of Jesus and, and he's able to do this without Jesus' permission or without Jesus' knowledge. No, Jesus will give the devil permission to test you. And he does that for the same reason that I got tested in school. It, one of the reasons is to reveal to you and reveal to others around you who you really are as a follower of Christ. Because you can, one of the things that we can do is we can really be good at fooling other people and fooling ourselves when it comes to who we are in Jesus. You know that's true. I mean, that you can come to church and you could have been, you know, smacking your kid in the face and cussing out your wife in the car. And then you walk in, you know, put your open Budweiser down underneath your car in the parking lot out here and come walking in and look at, hey, praise Jesus, man. I'm excited about what Cliff's got to say today. And none of us are going to know any different, will we? Because we can fool people. But the sad thing is, is that even just like I fooled myself in school, we can also fool ourselves when it comes to who we are in Jesus. Because we can make ourselves believe, all i got to do is come to church and listen to Cliff and, you know, serve on a team and be involved in a life group, and that's it, man. And, and me and Jesus, we're tight. And that's all it takes. And we can fool ourselves. And then what comes along? A test comes along. Jesus allows the devil to test you in whatever way it might be. And then the truth of who you are in him begins to come out, and sometimes it's ugly. Now, before you, you get all concerned about Jesus allowing the devil to test us and thinking, man, that's so cruel of, of who that, that, you know, he would allow that to happen and, and he must not love us, you need to understand that some of the greatest people in Scripture went through testing of the devil, first and foremost, Jesus. The Scripture tells us in the Gospels that Jesus, before he began his public ministry, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and then he grew up and became a man and before he went out and started preaching and healing people, it says that God led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And, and the, the church in Smyrna, it says there that they're going to be tested for 10 days by the devil. Jesus was tested for 40 days by the devil. And so for 40 days, he was in the, in the wilderness being tested by the devil. Now, if, if Jesus could be tested by the devil, I don't want us to think that we're above that. 
that, that he's going to say to us, hey, you know, I did that, but, but I'm not going to allow that to happen to you. No, he will allow us to be tested so that it will reveal. Now, the other, another reason that Jesus will allow us to be tested is because it's preparing us for something in the future. How many of you have heard of a guy named Peter? He was one of Jesus' right-hand guys. If you've heard of him, raise your hand up. Peter was, Peter was one of Jesus' right-hand men. Jesus had 12 disciples that he chose that followed him around. Peter was like a number one disciple right there with Jesus all the time. He was in the inner circle. He knew what was happening. And so he was the guy that Jesus was really grooming and training that he was going to lead the church when Jesus left earth and went back to heaven. Now, how many of you have heard of a story of something Peter did the night before Jesus was crucified? The night before Jesus was crucified, Peter followed where Jesus had been arrested, and he followed him, and people started asking him, hey, aren't you a friend of Jesus? And Peter started saying, no, I don't even know who this guy is. He did it three different times. Peter denied Jesus. It's a very famous story in the Scripture. Now, something you may not know, just a few hours before Peter denied Jesus, Look at what we see in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. This is a, a conversation that Jesus had with Peter, whose name was Simon Peter. And Jesus said this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now notice this, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. What did I tell you a while ago? If you're going to be tested by the devil, whose permission does the devil have to get before he can do that? He's got to get the permission of Jesus. And so the devil had come to Jesus and said, hey, I want to I test Peter. And, what he, and I love the, the terminology Jesus used there because it says sift you as wheat. You know what that means? What, what they used to do with wheat is they'd have a big pile of it and they would take a pitchfork and they'd throw it up in the air. And then when they threw it up in the air, what's called the chaff, the wind would blow the chaff away. And so then it would settle, and so then what was left was more pure than what was there before. And so they'd stick the pitchfork in there, throw it up in there. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter is, Hey, Peter, Satan has asked if he could come and stick a pitchfork in your rear end and throw you up in the air, and we're going to see what blows out. That's what he's telling him. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And then verse 32 says this, But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus allowed Peter to be tested by the devil, not because he didn't love Peter, not because he didn't have big plans for Peter. He allowed Peter to be tested because he was preparing him for something that was going to come later. And he knew that Peter had to endure a time of testing so that when Jesus left earth and went back to heaven, Peter would be the one who could stand up in Acts, the book of Acts, and stand up at Pentecost and preach the gospel and 3,000 people get saved. Peter could be the one who would lead the new church and to be arrested and not be afraid anymore, but he had to go through a time of testing first. So in verse 9 of Revelation 2, when Jesus says there, listen, I know your, your afflictions, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. What we need to understand is, is that what we see as success, God doesn't measure success that way. God measures our success in how close we are becoming to Him and, and, and how we're enduring any testing that comes into our life. That's why He was able to tell the church at Smyrna, hey, you're rich even though you are poor. And, and what happens is, is that Jesus wants to take the stuff that we go through in our life and He wants 
to use it for our glory. Now, what we want in life is we want stuff to be here for our happiness. But I want you to know that, that Jesus is more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Now, if you don't write anything else I say today down or you don't remember anything else I say today, that's what you need to write down and that's what you need to remember. Jesus is more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. We're not on this earth just to try to see how happy we can be all the time. We're being prepared for something bigger. We're being prepared to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. And what, what Jesus is wanting to do in us, if we're a follower of him, he's wanting to make us holy. He's wanting to, 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 to throw us up in there and get the chaff blown out of our life. And what's left laying on the ground is now more pure than it was to begin with. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, oftentimes what makes us holy, the things that bring holiness, are things that are difficult and even painful. One of the things that, that I've done before, in fact, when we first started the church, we did this with, a, it was just at that time, like three or four families of us, and, and um, we did this little exercise where we, we took uh, post-it notes, and we had two different colors of them, and you were supposed to write out your life story on these post-it notes. Like, so the first post-it note would be, Cliff was born, and you stick it on a table, and then the next thing that was important that happened in my life, you know, when, when we moved from where I was born to Columbia when I was three years old, that would be the next one. And, and you write all this stuff on there. Then you have a, a different color post-it note, and that would be something you would write on there that was tragic in your life or something that was difficult, a death, parents' divorce, uh, you know, uh, whatever it might be, the, uh, going, at, you know, your family losing their house and you having to move, whatever thing in your life that you would have looked back on and said, that was tough, that was difficult, it's really painful. And so we, we would line all these up on a table, your, your life from when you were born all the way to present day. And then I would ask the folks, I'd say, okay, now I want you to go back and I want you to pull off the post-it notes where you really feel like God taught you something about yourself, where you really felt close to Him, where after you went through whatever that was, that you were closer to Him and you were more holy than you were to begin with. And almost without fail, every one that people would pull up would be the times of tragedy. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go out today and pray for something bad to happen to you. The fact of the matter is something bad will happen eventually because this world is broken. What we need to do is when those times come, instead of thinking we're cursed by God, instead of thinking that we're not loved, instead of thinking that God has forgotten all about us, we need to understand that God wants to use that very thing to draw us closer to Him than we've ever been before. And He could be using that very thing to prepare us for some big type of ministry, for some impact on the kingdom that we could have that we could never have without that. That he will use testing, he will use trial, he will use poverty, he will use affliction, he will use persecution to draw us closer to him and to advance his purpose on the earth. But it's not about us always being happy. I like to be happy. I'm generally happy. But sometimes life is tough. And I need to understand that Jesus is more concerned with my holiness than my happiness. The last two messages before this one today, the one that I taught last week that began this series and the one that Donnie taught two weeks ago that ended the, the other series, both of them were about staying faithful, about remaining faithful through, through everything that happens. 
And I want to read verse 10 to you again and verse 11, the last verse of the letter that Jesus sent to the church at Smyrna. And I want you just to listen to the words. Listen to the language that's used about faithfulness in there. And it says this, verse 10. Do not be afraid what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Then verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. When I read this letter to the church at Smyrna, and I think about what they went through and how Jesus was telling them, you've been through bad stuff, but even some worse stuff is coming. You know what I see in my mind as an image? When I see the church at Smyrna as an image, I think of someone who's in amazing shape. The church at Smyrna was tough. They, were, they had trained themselves. They were, if, if, if they had a, if they had a, a physical body, they had six-pack abs and and gigantic biceps, and they were ready to take on whatever came. And when I think about generally the church in America, when I think about if we went through what they went through, sometimes the the image I get sometimes of the church in America is a guy who looks a little more like me, who's there's like a, a, a case of abs right here, just all hanging down below the belt. And a guy who who gets winded when he goes up six flights of stairs. Because as a a church in America, I think we've kind of gotten a little flabby. I think we've gotten a little soft. Because we expect everything to be so easy. We expect to to open up the doors and people just show up and there'll be millions of dollars and we build these gigantic buildings and, and, and we all have our own parking spaces close to the door and, and every Sunday should be sunny outside and, and not cold and not rainy because who wants to go to church in the rain and you know all that kind of stuff. And that's, that's kind of the way we operate. And what Jesus wants us to be as a church is He wants us to be a church that if the government told us tomorrow, you can't meet in this school anymore, that it wouldn't slow this church down. That we'd spread out and we'd be meeting in houses all over this community and we'd grow faster than we ever grew before. And he wants us to be a church where, where if, if the government makes some rule and says that Bibles are outlawed now, that we'd memorize it and we'd tell it to our children and we'd write it down in secret and we'd pass it along and we wouldn't be stopped by that. That's what the church in Smyrna went through. And the church in Smyrna grew strong because of that. Because Jesus was preparing them. He was more concerned about their holiness than their happiness. And they were rich because what they were going through was drawing them closer to Him. I want to close by reading verse 9 one more time. Because I think it's very cool. Jesus, because the first two words of it are so important. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I want you to to know something today, and that is this. Whatever's going on with you right now, if if you would raise your hand and say, Cliff, I'm in a time of testing. Right now, I'm in the middle of it. Or, or I'm married to someone who's in a time of testing, or I've got a friend who's in a time of testing. I want you to, to understand that the 
first two words of the verse 9 are true for you. I know. Jesus knows. It hasn't escaped his attention. And what he wants to do for you, for your loved one through that time of testing is he wants to purify them. He wants to purify you. He wants to bring you closer to him than he's ever been. And he wants to prepare you for something great. So don't be, don't be disheartened. Don't, don't be, feel like you've been forgotten. And don't lose faith. Because he who has faith to the end, he who overcomes, will receive the crown of life. I want us to pray. Our band's going to come up. And today, I'm not, I'm not going to open up the front unless you just want to come on your own. But I, I'm not calling you to the front. But what I want you to do is I just want you to deal with, with whatever's going on in your life and just ask yourself the question, am I more concerned with being happy or am I more concerned with being holy? And, and, and what, what is most important to you? And ask Jesus to help you to be more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for for words that encourage us even though times are tough or it can be hard to follow you it can be difficult when we're in pain or when we have financial struggles relationship issues Lord I pray that we would endure the testing we would understand that you're more powerful than the devil we would give you the glory we would stay faithful And God, we ask that you would continue to bless us, not because we deserve it, but so that you would glorify yourself through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.